Tonight, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5, for the preaching of God's word. And I'll be reading from verse 1 down to verse number 6. James chapter 5 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure in the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the reality of the resurrection. We're thankful that we know that our Redeemer lives. And because you live, we can face tomorrow. Dear Lord, we don't know what we will face tomorrow, but we are thankful that we know the one who holds tomorrow. And so we come before you tonight acknowledging our limitations, our weaknesses, but we come before you tonight trusting you, knowing that you're in control. We thank you for the testimonies and how you are proving yourself time and time again, helping us to get a better understanding of who you really are. I pray that you would speak to our hearts in a special way as we look into the pages of your word Continue to give us the understanding, the clarity, and the wisdom that we need to live this life to its fullest. I pray that you would work in a special way. Give me the words you'll have me to say. Cleanse me of sin, empty me of self. Fill me with your precious Holy Spirit. And that your word would find a lodging place in each and every heart. Thank you once again for what you're doing. We ask for your special blessings. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. The writing style of James is one that could be described accurately as that of a sharpshooter. James, as we have been looking at this book for several weeks and months now, recognized that he Pulls no punches. He deals with issues very directly and practically. And we've been learning much through the pages of this epistle in the Word of God and recognizing that James has this way of dealing with things, as we would say, where the rubber meets the road. In a very practical manner. He deals with 
issues that oftentimes we might want to tiptoe around, but he gets right to the point and gets to where we really are. And I've truly enjoyed this epistle and learned much from it, and I trust that you have as well. But just by way of very brief recap, in chapter 1, we notice that James addressed the matter of stability. And in a world that is very unstable, we need stability, amen? And stability can be found in the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. James admonishes us to be stable. He says in verse number 6, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is what? Unstable in all his ways. James understood that if we're going to name the name of Christ, because he's the rock of our salvation, we ought to have some stability about us, even in an unstable world. In chapter 2, he addresses the matter of sincerity. Sincerity. That the life of a believer, because we are uh, equipped with the truth of the word of God, we have Jesus who describing himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That there ought to be sincerity that emanates from our lives, from our Christian testimony. He decries hypocrisy in this chapter. He talks about faith and works. Why? Because these things ought to go together that based on what we say, and based on what we acknowledge to believe in our hearts, it ought to manifest itself in our actions. That's sincerity. Chapter 3, he deals with the very sensitive and touchy issue of speech. That these tongues that we have are capable of fire, a world of iniquity, and our ability to control and manage, if you will, these instruments we call tongues is a sign of our Christianity. In chapter 4, most recently, we dealt with the matter of spirituality. The fact that we have a flesh that wants to take control, a flesh that wants to dominate. But the life of a believer ought to be that where we are controlled by the Spirit of God. And as we submit ourselves to God, that he will have the victory and give us the victory over this flesh that wants to dominate. In chapter 5, we see James dealing with another matter, 
And I see in this chapter him dealing with the matter of stewardship. Stewardship. The life of a believer ought to be lived with the principles of stewardship at the forefront of his or her mind. Why is stewardship so vital in the life of a believer? Well, it is because, frankly speaking, we are stewards. In other words, we don't own anything, but we are managing the affairs and the assets that have been given to us by another. That makes us stewards. That ought to bring a particular mindset to us as it relates to our management of our time, our talent, and our treasure. You see, my friends, as a steward, and any steward will always, at some point in the future, have to give an account for how he or she managed what was entrusted into their care. We do a variety of different jobs and occupations. And for some occupations, you are in a position where you are a manager. You are given responsibility for a budget. You're given responsibility for managing a particular endeavor. You manage people. You manage their abilities. You manage resources. And at some point, because the responsibility is that of managing, one must give an account of his or her stewardship. That's just required of a steward. And so James addressed this very important topic in this chapter, as we'll see in several weeks to come, that you will notice that he deals, in dealing with stewardship, he addresses what I call, and I see as the perspective that we have regarding this matter of stewardship. Our perspective as it relates to what's in our possession. And what's in our possession, I want us to notice as we have this thought just prevailing in your mind, that the perspective applies to anything that God has entrusted to us, whether it's our time, our talent, our treasure. You see, this matter of proper stewardship is evaluated not based on how much we have, but how what we have is viewed. How it is used in light of the purpose for which it is given. And so I want you to keep that thought in your mind as we address this final chapter. And you'll see the principles or the perspective that is required for proper stewardship. The perspective that is required for being a good steward. For one who will proper manage, properly manage what God has entrusted into our care. And so I want to entitle this message and the following messages, uh, The Essence of Proper Stewardship. The Essence of Proper Stewardship. Because you see, my friends, when we think right, we act right. When our mind is in the right place, God can trust us 
with what he's given to us. And so we'll see that in the verses here and to follow in the days ahead. But I want you to jot this down as we look at verses 1 to 6, if we get through these verses tonight. James starts off with what I call dealing with the corruption of materialism. The corruption of materialism. Now I will submit to us here tonight that when it comes to stewardship, the issue of material things is where, as human beings, most of the problems seem to exist. It just seems to be the area where humans are tripped up. The allure, the appeal of stuff. And Jesus, speaking during his time here on earth, says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so there's a connection between one's desire for things, whether it's material or otherwise, whether it's fame, prosperity, whether it's whatever it is, and one's heart. And so James here in chapter 5 starts off dealing with when the heart is not in the right place regarding the perspective pertaining to stuff. The corruption of materialism. Notice with me verse number 1. He makes an alarming declaration. He says, Go to know ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Now, when you read this, it seems quite surprising. Quite alarming. Because he says he's speaking directly to rich men. Those who would have a lot of stuff. A lot of money. A lot of this world's goods. But he says, weep and howl. For your miseries that shall come upon you. Now, when you think of those who are blessed with riches, it shouldn't seem like they should be howling and weeping, doesn't it? It would seem as if weeping and howling and moaning and lamenting would be for those who don't have. Am I right? Anybody weeping and howling right now because you just don't have much? That would seem where the weeping and howling should be coming from. I mean, if you're rich after all, shouldn't you be relaxing somewhere in a suite, enjoying the pleasures of life, chilling on a beach somewhere, in a hammock just enjoying your material goods? There's a phrase that we use, don't we? Boy, that person was laughing all the way to the bank. What do we mean by that? We mean that, they, boy, they have so much money, or they got so much money from somewhere, boy, they were just in a good place, enjoying the fact they're about to bank it. We don't expect the weeping and the howling to come from rich men. But the call here is to weep and to howl. A devastating cry. 
because it would appear that there is serious trouble. There are miseries that are about to come. Why is this? There's an alarming declaration because notice with me, he says, your accumulations are defiled. What you have accumulated is defected. It is corrupted. Look at verse number two. He says, your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. What he was ultimately saying, you need to weep and howl and cry. You're about to have serious misery because there is a problem with your riches. Now, I want us to understand very carefully that God was not saying that there is a problem with riches. God, we know from the word of God, blessed people like Abraham, Jacob, Job, David, Solomon, with riches. So God was not castigating the having of riches in and of itself. But notice God qualifies this in the word of God very carefully, and I trust you don't miss this. He says there was a problem with their riches. He says, look at verse number two. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. When something is cankered, it's an indication that it is corrupted with what's called a canker. Like, whoopsie-doo, wow, that's surprising. But a canker is a gangrenous or ulcerous sore. In other words, what God was saying is that your riches are corroded. In fact, a canker is also a disease affecting horses' feet, usually the soles, characterized by a foul smell. So in other words, God was saying to them, this is how your riches are being described. There's a problem with your riches. And you have heaped up much of it. Why was there a problem with the riches that they had accumulated? It is because, notice, it had been acquired by deceit. Look at verse number four. He says, Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, it crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In other words, what he was saying is that your riches and your accumulations are corrupted. They're corroded because you've acquired them by deception. People have worked for you and you have defrauded them. You haven't paid them. They have labored and you've kept their payment 
by illegal means. You've ever been in a situation where you've worked and somebody's refused to pay you? You know what you said to that person? You're holding on to my money? They're holding on to what belongs to another? God says, this has made your riches corrupted, moth-eaten, corroded. And let me say this. There's a saying, and I firmly believe it, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. You see, there's a principle in the word of God, and there's a principle that is underlying here in this passage that when a person works, it is right and fair for them to be paid in conjunction with their work. You know, we ought to be happy for people when they work hard and they earn what they have through good, old-fashioned, honest means. That's a wonderful principle in life. Don't ever be one who is not willing to work hard but envious of another person who has worked and toiled and labored for what they have. You know, we live in a society where people just look at what people have and all of a sudden just are jealous of them without examining. Did they work hard for it? When they were in school, did they study hard to acquire the level of education? Did they achieve it through honest means? That's a principle. If a man does not work, the Bible says, neither should he eat. But God is saying to these individuals that what you have acquired and what you have accumulated, there is a problem with it because I have a problem with how you have acquired it. You've acquired it by deceit. And notice you have advantaged or taken advantage of the destitute. It says in verse number four, I've heard their cries. The cries of those who have reaped. It has entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. I've heard their cries. They've suffered because of what you've deprived them of, what is rightfully theirs. Look at verse number six. He says, ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. The, 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 the indictment here is that these individuals have used their power to suppress those who could not do anything about it. You ever find yourself in a situation where it just seems as though those who are taking advantage have all the cards? They got all the connections to all the people in authority and all those who could turn things in their favor. They have access to all of the legal might. Taking advantage of the destitute. God says, I want you to understand 
that I see this approach as despicable. Look at verse number five. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been what? Wanton. I mean, that's an indictment. Wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. In other words, you are greedy. You've grabbed everything. You never have enough. God says, I despise that kind of thinking. And oftentimes we might look around and we like, we lament and it seems like people who do the worst seem to prosper. Don't despair. God watching. God sees. God is not asleep. God says, I am aware of your deception. Look at verse number four. He says, the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. I'm aware. And if that were not enough, back in verse number three, he says, the rust of them shall be witness against you. He says, the, 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 the accumulations and your riches are so corrupted. Your garments are so moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver is cankered. Uh, that the rust of it is going to be a witness. It's going to testify against you. You ever see people with so much riches and somehow they still can't use it? It's tied up in all kind of banks. It's a number, but it can't be used. God says, I'm aware of your deception. And he says, for this kind of mindset regarding material things that is corrupt, he says, mark it down. Your acquisitions will destroy you. In verse number three, he says, This same gold and silver and riches, because they are corrupt in how you have acquired them, they shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Wow. You will be destroyed by the same corrupt riches that you've endeavored to accumulate. You've seen any people or observed individuals destroyed by things where things are more important than people? James begins this chapter dealing with the mindset, the approach that we are to have regarding material things. Once again, God is not against having things. God blesses his people with things. Amen? Not just even our needs, but God blesses us with our wants. Isn't it a Beautiful thing when you receive a blessing from the Lord. 
But it's so satisfying and rewarding when you know it came from the Lord. And do you know that God says, listen, when he blesses you, he added no sorrow with it. Meaning he blesses you and he wants you to enjoy it. But he says, when the mindset is not right, it leads to corruption. It leads to accumulation by deceitful means. And that mindset is one that leads to bad stewardship. And this principle can apply to anything that God has entrusted into our care. It can apply to our approach, to how we use our time. Do we use it as if it came from God? Do we manage it well? Do we manage our talents? Do we use them for his honor and glory? Do we recognize we will give an account for what he's given to us? Everything. Because that is the responsibility of a steward. Thank God for his blessings on our lives. Thank God for the ability to use what he's given to us for his honor and for his glory. Solomon in Proverbs says, a man's gift maketh what? Room for him. It means that God has equipped us with talents and abilities to achieve, to accomplish, to have things. But ultimately, our mindset and our heart ought to be on him, recognizing that he is the giver of good gifts, and these gifts are to be used for his honor and glory. They are to be used in a God-honoring way. And we are to be honest in our dealings with others and before God. I trust that God will help us, rightly placed at the beginning of a year, to be good stewards of what he's entrusted into our care.